Parenting is one of the greatest responsibilities that anyone could ever be called to. As Christians, what's the right way to do it? In this message, learn how to raise our children up to be the young men and women God intends for them to be. Genesis chapter 18, verse number 19. Genesis 18, 19. Um, I, this is really, uh, this is really not preaching. This is more teaching, and um, tonight I want to um, help us as parents to uh, understand what the scripture is all about and what the scripture is teaching. Um, as we come to Genesis eighteen nineteen, um, it's the story of Abraham and God uh, affirming, if you will, that Sarah's going to have a child in her old age. We just dealt with this a couple of months ago and really preached through this passage of Scripture. That's where Sarah laughed, and God said, why did you laugh? Don't you believe that I can do it? In Chadwick Street Version, and, and Sarah says uh, in verse number um, uh, 15, uh, I, I didn't laugh. In verse number 14, God asked this question of Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah, you're laughing, but we need to come to grips with the reality that really it's rhetorical. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And I'd like to remind you, nothing is too hard for the Lord. We say all the time, well, I don't know if anything could happen there. I don't know if anything good. I, I don't know if there could be restoration in my family. I don't know if my marriage could be brought back together. I don't know if my loss son-in-law or daughter could ever come back to Christ, I would ask you the same question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything more bigger and beyond what God can do? And so God asked this probing question to Sarah, the question we could ask, is there anything too hard uh, for the Lord? Can, you, can God not help you raise your children in, a, in the middle of a crooked and perverse world? Can he not help you raise them for Christ? Oh, absolutely he can. Absolutely. And so that account is, is taken care of or done. And then verse number 17, the Bible says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing uh, which I do? Well, he's talking about, if you remember, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around there for their pride, their arrogance, their fullness of bread. They're not helping the poor. All of the things that, that the book of Ezekiel talks about, obviously they're, they're debauched um, uh, grossly abusive sensual lifestyle that is going on, and God's going to, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And God makes this phrase to the angels that are with him, the Lord, we believe this is Jesus, shall I hide from Abraham that thing that I shall do in verse number 18. And here's just a, a focus to launch us into this lesson, not really a message. Seeing that Abraham shall, shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now, now notice verse number 19. This is the Lord still talking. For I know him. I know him. I understand who he is. There's nothing in my life that I don't understand about, or nothing that I don't understand about Abraham. And here's what I know about him. He will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. Now again, listen to this. God's saying this. I know him. Well, what do I know about him? 
God could have said, I know everything that he's going to do. He's, gonna, he, he's paid tithes. He's a good man. He'll build a nation. He'll do whatever. No, no, this is what God says. It seems to me like this is probably the more important of the things. Like, like maybe the utmost important of the things. That he will command his children and his household after him. And they... You see how it moves from the uh, singular to the plural? I know him, and he'll command his children and his household, and then they, because of what Abraham does, his children and his household now are included in this, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. And this is what they're going to do, justice and judgment. They're going to be just in what they do. book of Micah says, What did the Lord thy God require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Abraham is going to be a man who, who raises a family to be just in their dealings and to do judgment, to judge biblically, to judge correctly. God says, this is what I know about Abraham, knowing everything about Abraham there is to know about him, that he will lead his household he will command his children after him. He's not asking, dads, he's not asking his family to do something he's unwilling to do. You, you can't look at this text and say that Abraham is a, a uh, man who lets his wife lead the home. Abraham's in charge. And his children are going to do justly, his wife is going to do justly, and his children are going to have judgment, and his wife is going to, well, he probably had a couple, he had a couple of them, but his wife is going to have judgment, and they're going to follow the Lord. Why are they going to do it? Listen to me, because that's what Abraham's going to do, because that's what Abraham's doing. And it's not just something he does, hear me what I'm about to say, it's who he is. It's not just like, oh, listen, Sundays we go to church, and, and, and Wednesday nights we even go to church, and we're really committed. No, it, it was as much a part of Abraham's life on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday as it was on Sunday. He's going to command his children after him. He's going to make sure that they're following the Lord. He's going to make sure that his wife is following the Lord. Now, we talked about men this morning. Men, my heart's not to make you feel bad at all. I'm just saying that this is what God says. I know this about him. This is what he will do. Let me, can I stop and just say this? This is the example that God has for us. This is the standard that God has for us. Well, well, well I know John... We pray that God would be able to say that he will lead his children and his household after him. Notice Abraham, the Bible doesn't even say that, that Abraham will lead his children and his household after God. It's, it's implied that Abraham's following God. Abraham's just saying, follow me as I follow God. Don't we see that principle throughout the scripture? Paul says, be you followers together of me as I follow Christ. Be a follower of me as I follow Christ. It's a redundant thought throughout the scripture that we would follow the Lord while we're following the godly examples in our life. And Abraham is obviously a very 
very, very godly example. And he'll lead his children after him. I want you to turn with me. We're going to do a little bit. It's because it's a Bible study, we're going to study the Bible a little bit. And we're not going to, normally we're in one passage, but we're going to look at several tonight. So, uh, and I, I, normally we always put the verses on the screen, but every once in a while I want you to learn how to use your Bible. So you're going to have to turn pages, or those of you that still have those ungodly digital Bibles, you're going to have to push buttons really fast. I'm not, I'm just kidding. They're not ungodly. They're just dumb. As I preach off one. So I understand the hypocrisy here. So you can laugh at me and with me on that. But would you turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8? Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8. I believe this with all of my heart while you're turning. I believe that most men, I believe that most fathers, I believe that most women, I believe most mothers really have a desire to follow the Lord. I really believe that. That's why you're here tonight. Uh, that's why, knowing the subject, you're like, I'm going to go and, and hopefully we can get some help. Well, Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8, is a very helpful passage. Matter of fact, I remember hearing this verse for the first time when I was in Bible college. Now, let me rephrase that. The first time that I remember hearing it. I'm sure that my dad had preached this text many times. And just as a child, I probably just didn't remember. Maybe I could even say it this way. The first time it made a real impact in my life. I was in a, in a class called Philosophy of Youth Ministry. Uh, kind of philosophy we need to have as, as men who work with teens and things like that. It's basically what I taught Brother Bernie and what we taught Zane. And Bern learned it. Zane, the jury is still out. Callie got it quickly. Um, but uh, we're trying to teach a, a biblical philosophy. And it says in verse number eight, and this is a verse, I mean, one of those verses I pray I never forget. Beware or be on guard, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Verse number nine says, For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, this verse in, in interpretation is specifically talking about the person of Christ, or what we would say theologically, it's, a bit, it's not a big word, but you'll get it, is our Christology, the doctrine or the study of Jesus Christ and who he is. And Paul is writing the church at Colossae, and there were people who were trying to distract people from a biblical understanding and an accurate understanding of who Christ is was and who Christ is. And Paul says, beware, don't let any man spoil you from your understanding of, of who Christ is. And well, how would they do it? Through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments or the activity or the thoughts of the world, and not after Christ. This is the point I want to make tonight. If you don't have a right philosophy of parenting, then your actions really don't matter because you don't have an undergirding base that will keep you from going every which way there is that sounds good. That sounds good. Now, I know some of you tire of my illustrations of the physical, but they parallel so much in some of this stuff. You ever see somebody who's trying to lose weight? 
and they read one blog post, and that becomes the moniker of their life or the method that they're going to follow until they read another blog post, and then they're going to do this, and, oh, I'm going to try CrossFit for a while, and, and they try it, and as soon as they can't do pull-ups, and it's a grown man in the Marine Corps using a band to do real pull-ups, so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I had to give you guys a hard time this morning, but you, you, I'm just teasing, but you get the idea that, that like as soon as this becomes difficult, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do Zumba classes. Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do, you know, bowling to the oldies. I'm not going to do that. I, I got my Richard Simmons VHS tapes that we're going to pull out. And we're going to do those. And I got leotards. And, and I'm going to try a sauna. And, and before long, and I'm just giving a crude analogy, that if our philosophy is consistently changing, there will be nothing really of, of production that is accomplished. Why? Because we're always running to and fro. We're always running to some new thought. We're always going some new direction. That's why we have to have a philosophy, even a parenting philosophy, that is rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Sometimes people have a philosophy rooted and grounded in their upbringing. This is how I was raised. This is what my parents did. These are my thoughts. Now, the skills of parenting are of little value if we don't develop a biblical philosophy. Our world, when it comes to children, has two basic philosophies, two basic ones. You could take all of them and probably, I think, and I don't know everyone, I know a lot of them, but you could probably meld them down into these two, what we would call philosophical ideals that people parent their children by. Number one is what we would call the deterministic approach. The deterministic approach. The deterministic approach basically says this, the environment guarantees the outcome of the child. These practitioners of the, the deterministic approach are called helicopter parents. They hover over their children to make sure that every aspect of their kid's life is controlled and taken care of. I mean, they are the parents that yell at the ref if their kid gets out in six-year-old t-ball. Well, you made him feel bad. I remember I officiated a few of those games. I said a few things to parents like, I was trying to make you feel bad. But, and the guy that owned the refing uh, association didn't even mind. Deterministic. The environment determines the outcome for the child. Whatever you do, you put your kid in the right school, you get your kid in the right daycare, they, they, they learn the, the right sport, they get enough tutoring, they go to the right high school, they get the right grades, they do the right extracurricular activities, they go to the right college, they get the right job, they marry the right spouse, and their life will be good. Well, that, that, that's just flawed on every level. But there's the deterministic approach. And then secondly, there's what we call the denial. And the denial approach says that environment has nothing to do with the outcome of a child. If I have to pick between the two, I'm going to pick the deterministic approach because we know that environment has so much to do with the outcome of the child. So much to do. I was in the barbershop the other day up here, and they were playing just gangster rap, and I'm just being very honest with you. It irritated me to no level, and so I told the guy, change it. 
And he goes, well, I like it. I said, I'm paying. He said, I like it. I said, give me the remote. All the other guys in the shop said, yeah, give him the remote. And so we changed it. You say, what'd you change it to? Kenny G. (laughs) Wasn't a good haircut, but it was a smooth one. And so... It took him forever to do it. I was about ready to go back to the other stuff. Uh, I'm kidding. I, I would never do. But but I, I was in this. In, I was in there, and and uh, they were listening to that. And the guy doing my hair, he said, uh, "Hey, he goes. I had. He goes, Pastor. I had uh, a mom and her young sons come in, and one of the other barbers told me to turn this off because of the language. And she said, Oh, that's no big deal. My kids listen to way worse at home." I said, so what'd you do? He said, I left it on. I said, you're a jerk and you should have turned it off. He said, did you say that to him? I think those were my exact words. Uh, If not, I was close. That's the denial phase. We often, we often get on helicopter parents and kind of make fun of them and laugh at them. And we probably should. They deserve it. But it's equally or maybe worse bad for the parent who says environment has nothing to do. No matter what we watch at home has nothing to do with with what my kids think. There are children that have PTSD because of what their parents let them watch on TV or on a screen. I mean, we've got children, we've literally got children just probably in our church, but certainly here, certainly at our daycare, certainly at other places, that, that cannot function over the long term without a screen in front of them. I was talking to a friend of mine, or Debbie was talking to a friend of mine, uh, ours, Nicola C., who started Thrive Charter School before Gavin Newsom shut it down. I'm just saying. Uh, top 65 school in the nation, and he shut it down. <clears throat> Just, I'm angry about that still. I haven't worked my way through that. I asked the Lord, and he told me I probably shouldn't work my way through that. And so, but Nicole now works for the state of California in some capacity as an educator. She's a PhD and all that. And, and she was telling Debbie that we're now seeing major problems with kids at a very young age, at a rudimentary age of like, like kindergarten and T5 kindergarten, first grade, second grade, what we would traditionally say at those ages, who can't focus because they've spent the majority of their waking hours staring at a screen. I was talking to a chiropractor recently. He said, our biggest problem right now is people because they have their heads down all the time. I read an article this week about smartphones, and they said they call them adult pacifiers. <laughs> So I told Zane to get the binky out of his hand. Um, And we took it out of his hand. We did. He started crying, so we cut it in half and threw it back to him. Uh, You should have saw it, though. He just started holding both of them and didn't know what to do. Um, Truly, you want to provide the best possible shaping influence you can for your children. You want to structure your home to furnish the stability and security that they need. You don't want to determine everything for them, and you don't want to deny that the things have an influence on them. No, there's a biblical balance that we need to come to grips with. You want the quality of the relationship in your home to reflect the grace of God and mercy for fallen sinners. This is the character of God that this is the character that God demonstrates. You want your home to be filled with grace and truth, grace and mercy for fallen sinners. 
You want the punishment meted out to your children to be appropriate and to reflect a hold on God's view of sin. You want the value of your home to be scripturally informed and the values of your home to be scripturally informed. You want to control the flow of events that your home is never, listen to me, never chaotic. I'm just letting you think through it. Your home should be a place of peace. Now, I know every once in a while there, you know, you're trying to get out the door and you have four-year-olds that might have a little bit of chaos there, but, but your home should still be well-structured. Your children shouldn't, listen to me, they shouldn't live in an environment where, moms, where it looks like World War III just went off. Your homes ought to be clean. You say, well, prove that in the scripture. Cleanliness is lit next to godliness. Hezekiah 2.4. That's not in the Bible, but. But really, cleanliness is just an issue of stewardship. God's given you things to take care of. Now listen, Gloria and I grew up, my mom was a part of the cleaning Gestapo. I've told stories, and my mom says, it wasn't that bad. Mom, you literally vacuumed the ceiling. She goes, I did not vacuum the ceiling. I said, what do you mean you didn't vacuum the ceiling? You had us vacuum the ceiling. She goes, no, I just vacuumed the cobwebs and the dirt that's on the ceiling. Well, I didn't think you held the vacuum up there, but you literally every six weeks, she goes, and this is what Arlene said. Arlene, she's a bad lady. This is what she said. She's like, doesn't everybody? And I'm like, probably not everybody. You don't have to be that clean, but your house needs not to be chaotic. And by the way, your children, and don't say amen here if you don't do it. Your children need to put their junk away. Well, when do they have to put it away? Probably before they go to bed. I say probably facetiously. Before they go to bed or when they're done with it. That's why I get irritated when I walk outside here at Canyon Ridge and there are kids who have left, you know, toys from the playground that are members of Canyon Ridge on the playground. I'm not upset with the kid. I'm torqued at a parent who lets their kid play with something and doesn't make their child put it back. If I see it, I'm going to charge you. What? Like double tithe. Be a better steward. Your house, your home is a place of stewardship. It's where your children learn to be good stewards with the resources God has given them. Either your child learns to love and trust the living God or he turns more fully, these are your first blanks, he turns more fully to various forms of idolatry and self-reliance. When all is said and done, when everything is said and done, everything else, as important as they are, will never tell this whole story. Your child is not a product, it's not just a product of his shaping influence. He interacts with all things, he interacts according to the nature and the covenantal choices that he makes, his covenant with God that he makes or does not make. He responds to the goodness and mercy of God in faith or he responds in unbelief. Either he, and, and he either grows to love and trust the living God or he turns more fully to various forms of idolatry and self-reliance. 
It was Ted Tripp who said in Shepherding a Child's Heart, the story is not just the nature of the shaping influences of his life, but how he responds to God in the context of those shaping influences. I read, I think this illustration is in Shepherding a Child's Heart, maybe not. It talks about young Albert was a deceitful child. He would sneak around his dad's back. He would he would uh, lie whenever he thought it was beneficial. He would steal money from his parents, though not much. And his father, like every parent in good churches, insisted on interpreting his behavior as immaturity. His dad was a deterministic parent. It's just him being immature. If we just keep being nice enough, this is just a phase that he would grow out of. Albert's father was right. His son was immature. But this was not just a phase. This was a behavior of idolatry and covetousness that wanted to lie to get what he wanted and was willing to steal to get what he wanted. And his father failed to treat him as a sinner. And Albert's father is unable to help his son until his father viewed Albert's behavior as rebellion against God. When your child disobeys, when your child throws that fit, when your child lies, when your child steals, They're not lying per se to you. They're not stealing per se from you. They are defiantly raising their proverbial little fist to God and saying, I don't give a rip what you say. I'm doing my own thing. You must understand that when our children are born, they are born Sinners, not conceptual sinners, like one day they will sin. No, that beautiful baby that came out of your body, ladies, day one, straight up, evil sinner. That's what they are. You say, a pastor, well... Romans 5.12, wherefore as by one man sinned into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. All men are sinners. All have sinned. Your children are sinners. And they were born that way. It's not like there's a secret dad moment where we rub foreheads with your kids and they become sinners. They're sinners at conception. That's why David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't say it was sin for my mother to conceive me, but I was a sinner when I was conceived. That's just how I am. I have a nature of sin. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to tell you right now, either I'm going to go real fast or we're not going to finish. Or we're going to be here a long time. I have a feeling we're not going to finish. 1 Corinthians 2, verse number 14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Your child was born in natural. That just means in our, in our original state, our state apart from Christ. And he receives not the things of God. Your child is a sinner and you have to understand that they are born sinners in defiant rebellion to God. 
That's why when you coddle their little fits, you're reinforcing that rebellion is okay. I I told Buford to do something, and he turned his head from me, and he stuck his head in Mom's legs, and he just hid from me. And and Mom goes, oh, isn't that cute? And Dad goes, oh, that's kind of cute. No, that's rebellion to the very face of God and ought to be dealt with immediately. Ought to be dealt with immediately. Dads, you ought to deal with it if you're there. Moms, if dads aren't there, you need to deal with it right then. Not like, I wish she wouldn't do that. You should have thought of that before you had kids. Because they're all going to do that. Every one of them are. Why? Because they're sinners. And if you don't deal with it, you're only causing greater problem for your child down the road. Well, I think he needs a talking to. Like, what are you going to say to a defiant two-year-old? Buford? Mommy doesn't like it when, when you do that. Well, here's the problem. You just made mommy the authority. Mommy's not your kid's authority. I don't give a rip about my mama. She's not my authority. Who's my authority? God. And if I deflect the authority, authority from God, now I give a, please don't send that to my mom. <sighs> but I mean that. I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned about Debbie's feelings. I'm not concerned about my feelings. I'm not concerned about my sister or my brother-in-law's feelings. I'm not concerned about my mom's or dad's feelings. My concern is what is the relationship between them and God? Now, I have secondary concerns, but my primary concern is without a doubt, how is my child responding to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who created them? And when they throw a fit in front of me or they're resistant to me, it's not me. It's they want their own way and they don't want to put themselves, listen to me, under the authority that God has placed in their life. Which leads us to the first point. You are called to authority. You're the authority. I was a kid. I, I preached this message in, I think, 2007. I, don't, I think only Bernie was here, and he wasn't paying attention. He was still filling out his Excel spreadsheet on the perfect wife. That was fraught with error. John was still trying to figure out how to get his Jimi Hendrix t-shirt off, so Miriam, Debbie, and I were just shaking our heads, and the rest of you weren't here. But as a kid, I, would, I remember as a kid when we lived in Spanaway, I think it was off 152nd Street, and uh, we had a big backyard, and our backyard kind of opened up into these really big, beautiful hills that's now homes and, and uh, things. But I remember, I remember one night in particular that my brother and I, and he's always one for trouble and, and bad attitude and bad actions. I give him a hard time, but it's always true. And uh, we were outside, we were playing in, in Spanaway off 152nd Street uh, in our house. And it was about dinner time, and um, Gloria came out, and she yelled, you need to come in the house, it's time for dinner. And if you didn't know my sister, she's a gracious, godly woman now, but she was the bossiest human being on the face of the earth. She literally thought she was our mom and Jesus in the same body. And so I'm like, oh, we got to go in. And my brother taught me a lesson. He said, no, we don't. 
I said, well, Gloria said we got to go in. And Tim goes, she's not your mom. And I was like, she's not? <laughs> she sure acts like it. He goes, just shut up and play. I'm like, no, I'm going in. So he punched me in the arm. Go, go in, I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm like, all right. So we were going to play. So we just kept playing and playing and playing. And Gloria came out about five, ten minutes later. I said, it's time for dinner. And so Tim responded with, well, then go eat. And we just kept playing. And we kept playing. We kept playing. I don't know, five, ten minutes later, she comes out. And these were her words. Mom said, it's time for dinner. At which point, both of us immediately marched in, washed our hands, went in, and sat down. <laughs> Why? Because mom was the authority. Mom was the authority. As soon as my sister invoked my mom's name, we understood it's time to go. And we can't mess around. And at our house, like your house, we should be. My mom didn't say, like, I said it twice already. I'm counting to three. No, no, counting to three only happened when you were getting licks. One. Oh, you think that one hurt? Wait till number three. Count there. You say your mom wasn't like that. I told you. She's a Gestapo agent. <laughs> Parents, you're called to be an authority. And your authority is a God-given mandate. Our culture doesn't like authority. Turn with me, if you would, over to Deuteronomy 4.9. It's not just that our culture doesn't like authority or to be under authority. We don't like even being authorities. I see parents in our church. If I, I, I'm going to be candid and your pastor, your shepherd for a minute. I see a lot of you talk really big. Oh, I told my kid what to do. Da, da, da. I'm really happy that you made yourself feel good, but your kids aren't listening. You just made yourself feel good. They don't care about all of your bravado because they know there's no follow-through. But you have a God-given mandate to be the authority. Listen, I give my mom a hard time just because it's fun and I wish she was here to hear all my jokes. But the reality is we really grew up in a house with a lot of structure and a lot of fun. It would have been a lot more fun had my parents not had my brother, but we still grew up in a family with a ton of structure and a ton of joy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse number 9, the Bible says, Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. What am I supposed to teach them? The things that you've seen with your eyes and you've heard in your heart that God has taught to you. You have a responsibility to teach them to your children. Turn over to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians, all the way in the New Testament. You have a responsibility to be the authority in the life of your children. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse number four, your fathers, you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture 
and admonition of the Lord. Well, how would I provoke my children to wrath? I think one of the greatest ways is inconsistency. We talked about them a lot last week. Anger, yelling, screaming, partiality. This rule means something for this kid. This rule means something different for this kid. This one's the most loved. Oh, this one's sick, so he gets treated differently. Uh, we, we had a child die, so this one's more loved. I'm closer to this one than I am this one. You want to make your children angry? Be like that. We need a biblical understanding of authority. What is the nature of a parent's authority of the child? Is it absolute? Is it relative? Is it because of the size difference that you have? Do you have the right to tell them what to do simply because you are bigger than them? Because you're smarter than them? Because you could win a test? No, you're the authority because God has placed you in authority and you have a mandate given to you by God to be the authority. Well, but my children don't like my authority. Who cares? Why do you care about them? I'm just being serious. You're telling me an evil little sinner because he doesn't like something gets to determine the rules? So if I don't like... If I don't like the rule that I'm not allowed to break into a bank, do I now, in your line of thinking, have the freedom to break into a bank? How about a house? How about your house? Well, I don't like, I don't like it, so since I don't like it, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not trying to draw gross analogies. I'm just trying to help you understand and myself understand That God is not playing games when he gives you children. You are mandated to raise them for the Lord. And you're under authority to do so. It's not an authority of Pastor Chadwick. That's of no value. It's a God-given authority to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if you don't grab a hold of the reality and make that a part of your parenting philosophy, that you are the authority, then you will be way too harsh at some points, way too soft at other points. There'll be gross inconsistency with your children. You won't even invest your life to try to learn how to raise them for Christ. And and it's going to lead to, and here's some blanks, insecurity in your parenting. Well, what does insecurity in parenting lead to? Number one, it leads to frustration on the part of the child because the ground rules will constantly be changing. There was an issue at our house one time. I don't know if Judith will remember it. But Judith and Natalie wanted to do something. And um, we taught our children this principle very early on. Very early on. If you already have a no, go ahead and ask. I wanted my kids to be salesmen when they grew up and make a lot of money. And now Judith works with toddlers and Natalie works at a Christian college. So they're both going to be broke for life. But I was trying to teach them some sales principles. And I'm not, not secular, but like, hey, if you already have a no, why not go ahead and ask? All you would have is a no. If you already have a no, all they can say is no, and you're right back where you started. 
So somebody told me 90% of salesmen never make sales because they're afraid of rejection. Like, that's your job, being rejected. It was like me in high school trying to date. It's no big deal. <laughs> Just accept it. You're going to be rejected a lot. It's part of it. And so we had this issue at our house one time, and Judith and Natalie came, and it was a rule that we had had that Gloria and I had growing up, and Judith and Natalie came and talked to me, and they're like, Dad, I don't think you should have this rule. I think it's wrong. And so they had worked on Debbie. Debbie was the world's greatest parent from zero to 12, but she grew up, her parents are hippies that didn't smoke weed, at least not when she was around. She's staying with them tonight. Just pray for her. I think she's on a jet plane. But um, her mom did sing every night before going to bed, Rocky Mountain High. And I kept telling Debbie that has different meaning, but whatever. But she was kind of raised by hippies. Uh, who, who, they never argued. Matter of fact, the first time my father-in-law heard Judith and Natalie argue as teenagers, he pulled Debbie and I aside and he goes, do they need counseling? Do kids really argue this much? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, they need counseling. And yes, they argue this much. He had never seen anything like that in his life. She was an only child. She has an older sister, but her older sister lived with her mom and, and, um, Debbie, they have to share the same dad, not the same mom. And, um, and uh, Judith and Natalie came to me. They had worked Debbie over. I mean, they just worked her over. And Debbie was kind of like, okay, I see their point. And they came and they began to talk to me about it. Uh, Judith will probably remember it. It took me, listen to me, it took me two years to change my mind. Two years. We prayed deeply about it as a family. We, we sought the Lord on the issue. I was on sabbatical up in Washington one time, and, and um, we had spent the day after uh, being away from about seven weeks. I, the family came up, and we spent, a, a, I think, 10 days vacation there or something, and we were on a lake together, and we'd spent the day on the lake, and we'd been kayaking and swimming and, and uh, just having a good time, and we're sitting on the, the shore of, the, of, of Deer Lake in, in Washington State, and there's a fire going, and we're talking. And I can remember that's the night that I, that I finally said, I think God's given me the liberty to, to accept your proposal. After two years, you say, how much did that change in your world? Not a lot, but it was two years. Why? Because we had a deep-seated biblical philosophy about what we believed, and we wanted to make sure that if we changed our opinion or position of something, it wouldn't affect our biblical philosophy. Even though it might have made my daughters happier in the moment. You say, well, how do they feel now? I don't know. I, I don't care. I, I'm not going to change it. And I wouldn't change it for the world because I didn't want Judith and Natalie to think, and I didn't hold out just for this, but I didn't want them to think that our philosophy will change simply because you complain or because you have a difference of opinion. Because the philosophy comes from the Lord and first from the Lord, and my goal in life is not making you happy as your dad. I really don't care if you're happy. I care if you're holy. Now, if you're holy, I want you to be happy. But if you're happy and not holy, then I lose. 
So your holiness is way more important to me. So because you're asking me to change something that's very important to me, I'm going to take a lot of time. And we probably had 15 discussions about it. Dads, listen to me. And moms, listen to me. Most of those discussions were probably two hours or more. Judith's nodding her head. I, I would, Natalie and Debbie could give insight into that. But they were all very long discussions. And I taught them to debate and argue and find the points. And they did all of that. And they made fun of me a lot. Which if I could go back, I'd still hold to it just because it was fun to have those arguments. Insecurity and parenting, number one, will lead to frustration on the part of the child. Number two, insecurity and parenting, they'll learn through your inconsistency that there are no absolutes. And this will carry over into many areas of their life. There are no absolutes. And it'll carry over to many areas in your life, in their life. This confusion leads parents to improvise because they don't understand. And, and listen, I see it in our courtyard every day. Every single day. Hey, Buford, let's go to the car. I don't want to go to the car. How about Skittles? I hate Skittles. How about chocolate? I hate chocolate. Can I buy you a go-kart? I don't like go-karts. I want a motorcycle. Okay, you're three. I'll buy you a motorcycle. Just get in the car. What's the parent doing? They're just improvising because they have, listen to me, they have no grounding philosophy. Parental goals, notes on the back page, that you have are often nothing more than Goals for immediate comfort and convenience. What makes me happy? What comforts me? What brings me joy? I'm going to go for seven more minutes. What brings me joy? Parental goals are often for nothing more than immediate comfort and convenience. I remember, Gloria will laugh at this because she'll remember it. I remember one time my grandma Chadwick was getting kind of senile by the time I was a kid. I'm the youngest, second youngest of all the grandkids. I have one uh, cousin. Her name's Mandy. She's younger than me. I think my grandmother had 34, 37 grandkids, something like that. And I was the, I was the second youngest. And so she was quite old uh, by the time I was born. And she was very, very grouchy by the time I was born. She really was. She was not a fun person to be around. She was like some of our daycare employees. Just not a lot of, just I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Uh, especially the ones that work the desk most of the time. Um, but she was just, she was kind of really a, a grouchy lady. And my dad has a philosophy that everyone in here should adopt. And that is, if it's not moral or unethical, the authority is always right. If it's not immoral or unethical, the authority is always right. Well, who's the authority? In my family, like your family, the adult is the authority. No stupid little nine-year-old or ten-year-old is the authority. So listen to me. Look at me. This is not time to have a Bible study. I didn't even say turn to a verse. Some of you that need it the most are right now like, I wonder what I could color. How about if you color the darkness of your heart on this issue? Old people were the authority. By the way, that's still how it is. Honor thy father and mother. You honor your grandparents. You honor your aunts and uncles. In our family, if you didn't talk to an adult, oh my word, my dad would say, Katie, bar the door. 
This is what that means. Pray for the rapture because you're about to enter the tribulation. Post-tribulational rapture, folks, let me just tell you, their life is over in Gerald's house. And so they're the authority. And I remember Grandma Vera, she was the four-by-four four grandma, four-foot-high, four-foot-wide. And she's a... <laughs> I love it to hear Tyler laugh. Um, she was grouchy. And I couldn't do anything in her house that was right. And one time, I've told the story, I think, before, but a guy came and he gave me a pocket knife. A pastor gave me a pocket knife. And my grandma had a bunch of little sparrows in her backyard that she would feed throughout the day. And the sparrows in the backyard are out there. And I had a pocket knife and I wasn't allowed to do anything. And grandma was literally watching Days of Our Lives. (sighs) If you watch that, I pray that you will get like Ebola virus of the tongue or something. Like just painful painful thing. And, and, and she's watching that, and I'm stuck inside. It's cold. It's in the Texas Panhandle. It's windy. And I went outside, and I had this pocket knife, and I thought, I'll try to kill me a bird. They say, well, why would a boy want to do that? Let's figure it out. Because he has a knife, and they're there. And some people think like, oh, that, I'm, I'm very concerned about your psyche. I'm concerned about boys who don't think that way. I'll preach other messages later. So I took the pocket knife out. I knew Grandma would have a problem with it. And listen, the lady couldn't see five feet in front of her. She always told us, I just can't see. And I go outside and I take my pocket knife. And there's like a hundred birds there. And I miss them all by like 50 feet. There's zero chance of me hitting a bird. Like I threw the pocket knife and they came and landed on my shoulder. And like, dude, you are a loser. Do better. It was like they were all my brother, you know, and they just mocking me. And so I'm sitting out there for about 10 minutes. My grandmother on the chair, sees, she's on the chair about 100 feet away through a little window. Now, suddenly, miraculously, God gives her vision back. <laughs> Chris, read me this. I can't see it. You can see me out there. It's the other side of the county. And she saw me, and she saw me, and, and my dad comes home, and my dad... When he walked through the door, I didn't even know there was an issue. My grandma said, Gerald, that boy of yours. <laughs> I knew it was me because Tim wasn't there. He's out there trying to kill birds. And I'll never forget what my dad said. My dad said, well, Mama, that's what boys do. No, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't. My dad said, Mama, do you remember me and Jamie and David and Dale? She goes, you boys never did anything like that. And my dad said, Mom, remember we were in jail literally for stuff like that. She's like, I don't believe it. You bailed us out. It's still in your check register from 1954 or whatever. It got so heated that my dad said, did your grandma tell you you could go outside? And I said, no. Did she tell you to stay inside? I said, yeah. My dad said, well, son, the rule in our house is that you can go outside pretty much whenever you want to, right? Yeah. But your grandma told you to stay inside, right? Right. Did you disobey your grandma? Yeah. I'll never forget my dad's words. He said, go to the bedroom, which there was only one in my grandma's tiny little house. Go to the bedroom and uh, you're going to get what we call a timeout now. It was not really a timeout. 
And as he sat down and he talked to me, he said, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget. I, I can still remember he was in a white short sleeve shirt and black like polyester pants. And we're sitting on this really springy bed that made a lot of noise. He said, son, you're not getting punished for going outside. You're getting punished because your grandma told you not to go outside. And my mom, I could hear on the other side of the door because there's no insulation in the door. Before my dad came in, my mom said, you're, this is what my mom said to my dad. She said, she called my, mom, my dad Jerry. Jerry, that's a, the dumbest thing your mother could have ever said to him. And my dad looked at her and said, that's right, it was. And my mom was wrong. But that was the rule, and she's the authority. And he disobeyed. So, my dad introduced me for the 100,000th time of my life to the Board of Education. <laughs> and I learned a lesson. You see, the mandate, point number B, will never go away. It will not be rescinded. Parental authority is not rescinded because the authority maybe makes a dumb decision. I had teachers at school that made dumb decisions, and I didn't follow them because I was smarter than my teachers. Literally, the Bible says, if you read the Bible, you'll be smarter than your teachers. David says that, Psalm 119. I think it's 99. I took that to my teacher one time and said, listen, Mrs. Galley, the Bible says that I'm smarter than you if I read the Bible. I read the Bible, and I'm smarter than you. And she sent me to the principal's office. And glory, no, she wasn't a good person either. And she was a bad teacher too. But anyway, she was still the authority. And the philosophy didn't change simply because the authority made a bad decision. The authority was right. And the mandate doesn't change. Now again, if the authority, and I'm going to stop here, if the authority had done something unethical, listen to me, or immoral or unjust, then my parents would obviously not follow that. But my grandmother telling me to stay inside, even though I thought it was a dumb rule, and my dad thought it was a dumb rule, and my mother thought it was a dumb rule, it was still the rule. And you know what I learned? Is that there are some dumb rules in this world that I have to follow. There's just dumb rules that I have to follow. Like paying my taxes to a government that doesn't do anything with it, but abuse it, or pay for abortions, or things that I disagree with. What? There's still the authority. There's just things in life that are being trained in us and helped in us or, or encouraged in us that we have to submit to. If you don't act as a parent or if you act passively, or if you act in anger, you're wrong. There are really three thoughts or types of parents in the world. There's the parent who fails to act, the parent who acts passively, the parent who acts in anger. We could add several, the parent who acts consistently or whatnot, but the parent who acts, your final blank, biblically. My prayer for all of you is tonight that you will be biblical and that there's been some instruction and some conviction to help you act with a philosophical basis point that doesn't change 
because of the circumstances. That it's, it's steady. It's a steady state. And it does not waver because we're not getting spoiled in our philosophy. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.